Good morning, everyone. Hope you're well. My name's Sai. I'm one of the leaders here. You know, one of the things I've noticed as I've been speaking to people in this uh, pandemic, as we've all had to spend more time in our homes, is people have been uh, putting their house in order. In fact, you could say that the nation at the moment, or some of the Western nations of the world, are trying to put their house in order in relation to racism and tackle that. Churches across the UK at the moment are trying to work out how they are going to order their house to fit in with the new government guidelines as we ease out of lockdown. The English word for house is, is quite flexible and actually it's very good because it's very similar in the way to how the Hebrew and the Greek is used in the word is used in the Bible. In my last preach on the series A Heart After God, as we're looking at King David, I looked at how David wanted to build a house of God. And God said, no, you can't build my house, but I'm going to build your house, your family line. And through your house, I will build my house. And since then, I personally have been really challenged as I have been reading the Bible in my own sort of quiet times and times at home, how often the whole theme of the house of God comes out in Scripture. And as I've been meditating on it, I just feel it's right for us to spend some time uh, this morning focusing on the joy of being in the house of God. And then I'm going to hand over to my wife, Anna, who a little bit later will be speaking on the privilege of us gathering together as the house of God to meet with God. But to start with, I've asked just a few of our people to answer the question, what comes to their mind when they think of their house? Ivy, when you think of your house, what comes to mind? Um, family. Anything else? A nice cozy bed. A safe space to be with my family. Being safe and being with your family. Furman asks what comes to mind when I think about my house. What comes to mind, I think of it as a home, not just bricks and mortar. Somewhere where we can be comfortable together, where we can invite friends and, as well as family. Where we can show God's love to others. And uh, we've welcomed so many people in over the years. The first thing that came to my mind when I thought about my house was that it's somewhere safe and secure and somewhere we, we can relax. Uh, we're really thankful to God for the house that he's given us. We uh, chose another one, but that all fell through. And we were so glad that it did because this is the house that God chose for us. And it's been so near the house, near the church, and uh, just in the right place for us, and big enough to invite people round and have them stay. So we just thank God for it. When people think of your house, the chances are they're primarily not thinking about the bricks and mortar. They're thinking of the place where you yourself, where you live. So they're thinking of the largest house or the Coltman's house. See, people may have a, a splendid house, and uh, yet if, if the people in a splendid house are grumpy, no one's going to want to 
go there. However, conversely, if someone doesn't have a particularly nice house, and yet it's even difficult to get to, if the people that are there are lovely, then everyone is going to want to, to go there. A house also speaks of a certain level of permanency as opposed to a tent, as you can see I have to my left over here. A tent, a tent speaks of a temporary dwelling, or in the UK, even a holiday dwelling. You know, I have some Uganda friends that we thought, oh, do you know what, they would love Stonely Bible Week. And we brought them to Stonely Bible Week. We put them in one of the best tents that we had. And their comment to us was, why have you brought me to a refugee camp. We've got plenty of these back in, in Uganda. Now, the reason I'm highlighting to you things that you know about a house or about a, 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 twent, a tent, I put my teeth back in, a tent where people dwell in is because God, the Father heart of God, wants to dwell with his people. Right from the beginning of time, in the book of Genesis, in the Garden of Eden, you see God wanting to dwell with his people. In the cool of the evening, he would come and be with them. Then because of mankind's sin, that intimate friendship, that, that dwelling together was separated because God being holy could no longer dwell alongside sinful man. And they had to be put out of the garden, that relationship broken. But, you know, the great cry that we see in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible, as it looks forward to the time when Jesus will return to restore all things, as it says this right at the end of the book, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And I saw, it goes on to say, and I saw no temple in that city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. God is wanting to dwell with his people. He is wanting, if you like, you to be in the house of God with him. And right from early on in the book of Genesis, we see, even despite the sin that separates man uh, from God, God allows man to start calling upon him and starts uh, engaging in a, a relationship, a way for man to relate, for humankind to relate to God. And you get that wonderful story in Genesis 28, where God appears to, to Jacob on the stone as he's got his head, head there and he's fast asleep. You suddenly, um, he suddenly sees this dream of a ladder going up to heaven with the angels of God ascending and descending and God himself being at the top. And when he awakes, he, he, he says, oh, I, this place is the very dwelling place of God. It's the house of God. He and so he names it Bethel. Later on, where God calls his people out of Egypt as a sign that they're God's chosen people. He commands Moses in Exodus 25 to build him a sanctuary. He says there, let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them. And that place became known as the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. 
Hello, dear. Hello. It wasn't a tent like this. It was a tent like this. So God would, be, would meet with people in the tent. And as a sign of God's presence there, in the daytime, there'd be a cloud above, uh, having, hovering above it. And at nighttime, there'd be a pillar of fire. And then uh, God would be in that, it was in that tent with the people of God while they were in the tent. And he, and he traveled with them as they traveled throughout their wanderings until they settled in the promised land. And after... Uh, they had been there and they were established in the promised land with King David under King David's reign. King David, as we looked at last time, wanted to build a permanent house, a brick house, a splendid house for God to dwell in. And that's where God says to him, as we looked at last time, you're not going to build a house for me, but I'm going to build your house. And through your house, I will build my house, which Solomon, David's son, uh, builds the first physical temple, which looks something like this. And again, when they dedicated that temple building, there God blesses it with his presence. And it says this in 1 Kings 8, the priests could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the temple. The temple was a sign of God dwelling with his people, a place where people could go to to meet with God. And people did go. People traveled hundreds, sometimes thousands of miles to meet with God at the temple. Oh, how long is it until we get there? Ten more walking days until we get to Jerusalem. But it will be worth it, though. But David's prayer, even before the temple was built, was this. One thing I have asked of the Lord, that, that, that will I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire at, in his temple. You know, Solomon's temple got destroyed due to the people's sin and it was later rebuilt by Zerubbabel and then it was developed further by uh, King Herod around the time of Jesus. But you see, the problem was that whilst the temple was a physical sign of the people, dwell, uh, of God dwelling with his people, due to our sin, our inbuilt rebellion against God's rule, people could not come too close to God. In fact, only the priests could go into the temple and only the high priest once a year could go into the most holy place within the temple. But God's heart was always that he wanted to be close with his people. And, you know, there's a sense in which, um, as the Apostle Paul makes clear, and the Jews would have known that, um, as we find in Acts 17, that the God who made the world and all things in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made by, with hands. He's, he's everywhere. And yet that temple represented uh, God in a special way, his presence in a special way. And God wanted 
God's heart was he wanted to, to dwell with people in that special way, not, not for them to be kept out of his presence. But in order for people to enter into his presence in that special way, the psalm tells us in Psalm 24, it says this, it says, using poetic language, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord and who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. But the truth is, None of us are actually pure in heart. None of us before God have clean hands, so to speak, so that we can actually approach him. God has to help us in this area first before he can dwell with us as he wants. And eventually, as you know, God sent forth Jesus, David's greater son, who, whilst he was the son of David, was actually the Son of God. And he comes and lives amongst us. John chapter 1, verse 14 says that, he, uh, that the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word there being the same Greek word used to translate the Hebrew of tabernacle. So Jesus tabernacled amongst us. He was the very presence of God amongst us, living and walking and talking the streets amongst us, just as God had always wanted. Jesus could say, he who has seen me has seen the Father. He could say that he only did and said what the Father wanted him to do and wanted him to say. It says in the book of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it says, Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. Then Jesus willingly, after representing God, after being God, walking amongst us and living that perfect life, chose to die on a cross so that he could take on himself all the sin, all that rebellion against God, of all the people that put their faith in him. Not only that, when, when people put their faith in him, when you did it or when you choose to do it, when you surrender your life to, to, to God, you get given, you receive the Holy Spirit of God. He comes and lives inside of us, transforming us from the inside out. Before God, because of Jesus' death, we are now pure. We have a, a pure heart, if you like, and clean hands. And the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us, he is there now working in us, helping us to want to live a pure life, helping us to want to live in a way that pleases God. So you see, we no longer have to go to a special place to meet with God. In Christ, we become the very temple of God. It says in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? Hallelujah. In 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, it says, For we are the temple of the living God. The church in Ephesians 2, we're told, actually becomes the house of God. God, where God 
dwells. And when Christ returns and restores all things, we as his church will be given resurrection bodies that, that aren't subject to sin anymore. And we will live in a way that perfectly glorifies God. But in the meantime, we have to take every thought and every action captive and make it obedient to Christ, the Bible tells us. You see, as there's certain things that are no longer appropriate for you and I to do as Christians as the house of God. Because God doesn't want some certain activities in his house and he wants certain other activities to, to be in his house. So Psalm 93 verse 5 tells us that holiness befits your house, O God, forever. You're the house of God if you're a believer in Jesus today. His spirit lives in you. You need to be holy just as the Lord your God is holy, as scripture commands us. So through the spirit's help, we're to draw strength from him and try to live holy lives. Yes, when we fail, which we all do, we come to to Jesus and we receive forgiveness again. Actually, he is ultimately our righteousness. But the Spirit, day to day, is there to help you to try to live a holy, pleasing life for God. Psalm 84, verse 4, tells us, What joy for those who can live in your house, always singing your praises. Joy, celebration, worship, these were characteristics of the people. Uh, these characterized Jesus' ministry. People around him were always joyous. Where people were uh, celebrating. People were worshipping. In heaven, it will be full of joy. It will be full of celebration. It will be full of worship. As the house of God, you should be characterized by joy, by celebration, and by worship of God. Lastly, there's other things I could say, but I just wanted to pick three. Jesus says in Matthew 21, verse 13, My house will be called a house of prayer. No wonder in the New Testament there's so many scriptures encouraging us to pray, to pray continually, to pray without ceasing. There's so many examples of prayer in the New Testament as well. Let's give ourselves individually and corporately as the body of Christ, as is fitting for the house of God, to holiness, to joy, to celebration and worship, and to prayer as well. You see, we are the temple of God. He lives inside of us. He lives inside every believer. But, you know, this side of eternity, Jesus is clear. The Bible is clear that when we gather together corporately as his church, he is with us in a special and a powerful way. So I'm now going to hand over to Anna to talk to us about the importance of us gathering together to meet with God as his people. So as the house of God and the people of God, we're told really clearly in Hebrews 10 to not stop meeting together. In Hebrews 10, verse 24 to 25, it says, And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, 
but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. But why does it tell us that we shouldn't neglect meeting together? Why can't we just be our own temple of God by ourselves? Well, the passage gives us some really clear reasons. The first one is to encourage one another. And the second one is about stirring. It's to stir one another up like this. And the Bible tells us it's to stir one another up to love and to good works. You know, when we're together, we provoke one another. Sometimes, I'll just borrow Simon for this bit. Simon, you come up here. Sometimes we provoke each other like this, and sometimes we provoke each other like this. But we provoke each other to deeper intimacy with Jesus and the service of him. You know, it is really easy to think that you're doing really well and that you're really quite holy when you're by yourself because, let's be really honest, we rarely assess or judge ourselves negatively. We normally find a reason for any bad things that we think or do. But how we relate to one another, how we serve one another, and how we love one another really shows our heart And Jesus so clearly tells us in Matthew 12 that out of the heart, our mouth speaks. When we meet with the house of God, with the people of God, our ingrained family and cultural beliefs, behaviors and prejudices are really challenged and brought into line with actually what the Bible says is what we should think and believe and do. We shape each other into becoming more Christ-like as we are together hearing and applying the word of God to become more like Jesus. Meeting together with the diverse people of God stirs our faith and it encourages us. We get the joy of seeing new believers and seeing that wonderful moment or process of the wonder of salvation. And we're stirred up to just remember that first love that we have for Jesus, that first amazement that Jesus would die for us. Actually, that love and gratitude should grow and grow and grow as we start to get to know God more and realize how holy and how good he is and start to understand how much we need God to step in and save us. As we hear and witness the testimony of more mature believers, how they've tackled challenges, how they've managed family life, how they've dealt with relationships, how they've overcome hardships, how they've dealt with bereavement and lived with illness, it causes our faith to mature and to grow and our desire to honour Jesus grows with it. We stir each other to good works, even in the face of challenges disappointments and failures, we pick each other up and we remind each other of scriptural promises like Psalm 37, where it promises us that the steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he may fall, he shall not be cast headlong for the Lord upholds his hand. We use spiritual gifts like prophecy, words of knowledge and words of encouragement to build each other up and to spur each other on in good works. You know, the church is so unique. It's not a club, it's not a business, it's not an organization, but it's the family of God, it is the bride of Christ, and it is the body of Christ, representing Jesus here on the earth. Before Jesus died, he cried out, 
for his church to the Father. We'll read it together in John 17. He says, it's really sad. I've had to have a bigger text. I couldn't read my little Bible. It's a very sad moment in my life. It says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their words, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them, even as you loved me. You know, when, it's taught, when Jesus is praying for those who will believe, that's us, those who will believe, seeking that we would be one, like the Father and him are one. And why does he pray that? He prays that so that the world will believe that Jesus was sent by God to reconcile people to him. And so that the church would show to people looking on the glory of God. You know, Jesus wants his body to be unified. And as one of the parts of his body here in Halsham, we need to remember that and not give up meeting together. The joy of meeting together is, as Jesus promises us in Matthew 18, that he will be with us when we meet together. We have the joy, the blessing, and the spiritual refreshment and strengthening of communal worship. I don't know about you, but for me personally, the thing that I've missed so much has been communal worship. You know, worshipping together is so special when we're here on earth and we get caught up with what is happening in heaven where they are forever praising God. You know, let's not give up meeting together like we're told to in Hebrews 10. You know, the next few months, it's going to be a bit uncertain. I'm sure you will have heard that the government has released new guidelines on us meeting together. And we're looking at that and the elders and the trustees are discussing about how that's going to ha- um, like look like for us as a church. I can guarantee you it will initially be a bit higgledy-piggledy. It will be changeable. We'll do some things that won't work at all and it will be a bit disastrous and we'll think, don't do that again. But actually, we are going to try to meet together. You know, for some of you, the option of physically meeting together is still not a possibility and won't be for a while. You might be shielding, you might be having to isolate because of um, family members that are shielding or having to isolate because you've been unwell or you've been exposed. You might be awaiting surgery. Well, don't, don't panic. We will continue to provide for you. We are such an important part of our church family here and we will make sure that you can have church in your home and see people from your church family you know you're a really important part and so valuable to us as a church family so don't feel excluded or unloved or that we're not looking after you we are planning for you to consider your needs as well especially to make sure that your needs are met but for those who can meet I can guarantee, just by the way life and the devil works, that it really won't be convenient, it won't be easy, but let's do as the scripture commands and not give up meeting together. To be family, when there is the opportunity to meet, let's actually meet, even when it's really hard work, when the kids are screaming, when it's hard to concentrate, or it's not how you want or remember it being. You know, even when we're not able to do the traditional New Frontiers way of um, worshipping, then the children go out, we worship a bit more, we have some notices, we have a preach, we have a response song. You know, that, 
that is gone and to the wind for the next few months at least, we're not, we might not even be able to sing at first. But does that mean that God shouldn't be worshipped? There may not be children's work. And initially, the kids will likely be in the service for the whole time. The service might be shorter than you remember it being. There might even be more than one service, so you won't get to see everyone that you would want to see. But we can promise that as far as it depends on us, we will enable you to hear biblical teaching, to have fellowship together, to break bread together, and to pray together, as laid out by the New Testament apostles in Acts 2. So can I just encourage us that in this unprecedented time, let's not give up meeting together. Let's be church together and do as scripture has commanded us to do. You know, I'd really like to finish by praying for us as a church community, just praying that we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit and just praying as well that God would give us wisdom as we um, work out how um, we're going to meet as church. So let's pray together. Um, Children, you, this is for you as well, this prayer. So if, you, if you're engaged with what I'm saying, do you want to stand up and put your hands out in front of you? We're going to pray for you to be filled with the Holy Spirit because you are church as well. And um, we want to pray for everyone together. Lord, we just thank you so much uh, for the joy of church. We thank you that you've put us into family. We thank you for that amazing truth that when we meet together, that you are with us. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that um, you know exactly the right thing to do in this situation. Lord, we thank you that you are for your church and not against it. Lord, we just pray that you would fill each one of us with your Holy Spirit. Lord Jesus, I just pray for each person as they're listening now, that you would just fill them with your Spirit, that you'd give them strength, that you'd give them wisdom. Lord Jesus, help us to be a group of people who fearlessly advance your gospel Lord, help us to show your glory in the way that we behave, in the way that we relate to each other. And Lord, we just pray that you would give such wisdom to each one of us as we work out how um, church is going to look in the future. And we just pray, Lord Jesus, pour your spirit out on your people and bring many to love and to know you. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us. It's a real joy to be able to speak to you. And um, we just really pray that you'd know God's love and his blessing with you this week.